If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, come grab one over here at the front. Uh, it's a free gift for you. And of course, you can always download one on the App Store on your phone. Apparently, the last thing I looked at was the newspaper. So I got to quickly pull up my notes here. There we go. Uh, all right, everyone. Well, we have been going through a kind of a bit of a sabbatical from the book of Matthew for the last four weeks, um, but we are back in the book of Matthew today. So we are going to be continuing on where we left off. Um, so just a, a quick um, a quick recap. Uh, Jesus has been uh, he's been in Jerusalem during the Passover season, and he's had this ongoing series of confrontation with, uh, with Israel's religious establishment, with the religious leaders, uh, where he critiques them and essentially critiques them for, uh, for being faithless to what God has called them to do. Uh, after that, he goes on to have like a conversation with the crowds uh, critiquing the religious leaders. So there's this ongoing tension. Uh, then Jesus leaves the city with his disciples, and as he's leaving, the disciples, being kind of country folk, are looking around like, oh, the buildings are really cool. Look how impressive the temple is. And Jesus makes this offhand comment saying, well, don't, don't worry, you guys, that, that's all going to go away. Like, it's all going to be destroyed. Now, they're all like, whoa, 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 Jesus, what? What just happened? So they go back and they say, um, essentially, when is this going to happen, Jesus? And also, while you're at it, why don't you tell us what's the sign of your coming again in the end of the age? So Matthew chapter 24, Jesus begins the first half by essentially talking about that first question, when the temple is going to be destroyed. He says it's going to happen within this generation, which, of course, uh, we know from history it does. The Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, completely destroying the temple. Uh, and then he goes on to answer the second question in the second half of Matthew chapter 24. And essentially what he says is, no one knows when I'm going to return. I don't even know. Only the Father knows. And you should probably not be looking for for signs and symbols because you're not going to know. It's going to take you by surprise. But, but he goes on to say you need to be prepared. And to illustrate what preparedness looks like, he tells three parables. And so we looked at those three parables the last few weeks before we, we uh, jumped into our incarnational series. Uh, the first was a parable about uh, uh, kind of two paths a servant could take. A master goes away on a long journey and he entrusts his household to his servant. He says, take care of my servants. Make sure everything runs properly. The servant has a choice to make. He can either listen to the master, be faithful, and then when the master returns, uh, everything, if he's been faithful to the task, will be in order. Uh, however, the, the, the servant could look around and be like, my master hasn't been here for a long time. And he can start to abuse the servants, and he can start to indulge in selfish, self-serving, self-indulgent activities. And Jesus warns that the master will come on a day he does not expect and woe to that servant whose master finds him unprepared for that return. He tells a second parable, which Ken led us through, about ten bridesmaids, ten virgins, who they're awaiting the arrival of the groom and the bride, and uh, they aren't prepared. Five of them are, are, are prepared, five of them aren't. Five have oil to burn their lamps so that they can walk in light towards the wedding reception. Uh, five do not. And again, there's this calling on Jesus uh, that Jesus is giving to his followers to say, you don't know when I'm going to return, but you need to be prepared. And finally, the parable that we last looked at was a parable of the talents. Uh, a master goes away and he entrusts various uh, amounts of money to his servants. One gets five talents or you know, five million dollars or five bags of gold. Another gets two and one gets one. Two of them are faithful. They invest that money and it gives a big return. And when the master comes back to settle accounts, he commends them. Again, this is Jesus telling us a picture of what preparedness looks like. But the third servant 
he buries the money, gets nothing out of it, returns to the master only what he has given, and the master condemns him and calls him a wicked and lazy servant. Today we're going to look at Jesus' kind of final uh, final uh, picture or uh, working out of, of this idea of what it looks like to be prepared. And I think what we're going to see today is that Jesus is going to make explicit what he has been saying implicitly will happen in these parables. Uh, but there's, there's this part of today's sermon that I think for some of us is going to feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit awkward because Jesus is going to talk about hell. Uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of get this picture that for, for a lot of Christians, hell is kind of like, you know, that thing in your house that you're kind of embarrassed of. You can't bear to get rid of it, but you're really embarrassed of it. So you kind of hide it somewhere and you really hope that like no one ever discovers it, but it's there somewhere. You bring it out sometimes when you really have to. You can't get rid of it, but, but you don't really want other people to like know about it. I kind of think that this is a lot of ways that uh, people in the church kind of think about hell. It's this, it's this thing that we're like, it's kind of there. We wish it wasn't. We don't really know what to do with this idea of a loving God that would send uh, people to hell. And, and a part of this is that we have this kind of caricatured picture of how God and hell relate. And I think it looks something like this. We, we kind of imagine that God is almost like this bipolar deity. You know, on one hand, if you get him on his good manic side when he's in a really good mood and you've been nice and not naughty, you're not on the naughty list, you're on the nice list, then, you know, God is going to be really good and he's going to let you into his, his big paradise kingdom and you'll sit on the clouds and enjoy all the pleasures that you had to deny yourself to get in his good books. But then if you get on his bad side, if you get on his angry side, then he's going to send you to his cosmic torture chamber for all of eternity. And he's going to put you on a spit and roast you slowly over fire where some red guys with horns and pitchforks poke you for fun. And this maniacal deity lasts while he slowly causes you to suffer for the rest of eternity. I have good news, church. This picture, if this is the picture that you have of hell... Uh, I can clearly tell you this is not the picture that Jesus is going to give us today. But if, if you are like me in that, you know, hell is sort of this thing that you're not really sure what to do with. You kind of hope that if someone's ever exploring faith that you never really have to talk about this piece with them. You can talk about how great Jesus is, how much he loves you, how much he's like pursuing you. Oh, but there's this thing that happens if you don't follow him, hell, uh, that, that, that we need to take this concept out of the closet. We need to bring it to light. It's interesting to me that Jesus, more than anyone else in the Bible, actually talks about hell. And so if this is important to Jesus, and we call ourselves his followers, then it should be something that we think is important as well. And it's actually one of the reasons that we value as a church reading through the Bible verse by verse, because there are those things that on our own we probably would just try and ignore because they're uncomfortable, and yet... When we read through God's word in its fullness, we have to deal with the things that he thinks are the things that we need to know about. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to get started in verse 31. Um, again, this is Jesus kind of following off those parables. And he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
So Jesus is, and like I said, he's making explicit what he said implicitly. So, so what he's saying is that parable about the master who left the servants in charge, or the parable about the, the groom who's coming with his bride, or the parable about the master who entrusts amounts of money. He's like, that is me. I am the master. I am the groom. I am the, 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 the owner of the talents. And I'm coming back. This is going to happen. And he uses really explicit biblical language. He actually uses imagery straight out of Daniel 7, this idea that the Son of Man, who's going to come up into the throne room of God and take his place, be invested with God's own authority. Uh, language from Joel chapter 3 about this time when God is going to come back and he's going to judge the nations. And Jesus says, that is going to happen. It's going to be fulfilled in me. I will return. This is what's going to happen when I return. I'm going to come and I'm going to settle accounts. And he says, when that happens, I am going to look at everyone in the world. They're going to stand before me, and I am going to separate them, the sheep from the goats. The sheep will be on my right, the goats on my left. And the sheep really represent those who are prepared, right? This is what Jesus has been talking about up to this point. I'm going to come back. You need to be prepared. The sheep are those who have been prepared. We might call them the repentance, but the goats represent those who are unprepared, who we might call the rebellious. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. If you're like me, when you first read this passage, it's a little bit uncomfortable because it seems to say that it seems to be saying that that, that Jesus is saying, what you do is what gets you in. Right? That, 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 that's what it seems to be saying, right? Uh, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink, so you can come in. I saw these things, you can come in. And he's going to go on to say in verse 41 all the way down to verse 46 that there's the goats who didn't do these things. So is Jesus saying, what you do here is what gets you into my good graces, is what saves you? I mean, that seems to go completely against, if you've grown up in the church, what we talk about all the time. Let me just remind us, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by what works, so that no one can boast. And Paul says it right here, it's not what you do that gets you in. It's what God has done. So is Jesus making a counterclaim? Is he saying something different here? I don't believe he is. Let's go back to verse 34 and read this again. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you when? Since the creation of the world. In some sense, what Jesus is saying here is, this destiny has been yours since before you did anything. You were chosen before you were even born to inherit, inherit this kingdom. Leon Morris, he's a, a scholar and a commentator. He writes this, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, he, meaning Jesus, is saying that God has blessed them, meaning the sheep, and brought them into his kingdom, and he proceeds to cite evidence that shows that they do, in fact, belong to the kingdom. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you are sheep, you're coming in. Here's how I know that you're sheep. This is an important distinction because Jesus is, is really saying here that it is the righteousness that they have been given from God that has produced the works, not the works that is now producing the righteousness. And this is the exact same point that Paul goes on to make in the very next verse in chapter 2 when he says in verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul makes the exact same point that Jesus is making. It's by grace that the sheep are saved. The evidence of their salvation is that they are now living the life that God has created them to live, that they're producing fruit. Their life is demonstrably shown to be the life of sheep because of the evidence of what's going on. So again, who are the sheep? They are the disciples of Jesus, those who have been prepared, those who have been faithful to give their lives up to him, who lay their lives down to do what he says, and it looks and smells and tastes like Jesus. They do the things that Jesus does. And who are the goats? They're everyone else. But there's this other group of people that Jesus talks about in this, in this, uh, in this um, conversation. It says in verse 40, then the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. So in some sense, the way that the sheep have responded to these least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus is important. So who are these people? When I, um, when I encountered this passage earlier in my life, uh, my natural assumption was that this just represents poor people. You know, Jesus has always had this affinity with the poor. Um, he's always had a, a great compassion for the downtrodden. And, and many, uh, many people still think this is true. The, the problem I have with this is that the language that Jesus uses to talk about these people is never applied to poor people in Matthew's gospel. Other people uh, have a, a particular theological framework for which they would uh, dissect this passage. In particular, those who hold a futurist vision or a dispensationalist vision would say, well, this is a group of people who are Jesus' uh, ethnic brothers and sisters, Jewish people uh, who are going to be suffering in the Great Tribulation, and God's people uh, will be saved by how they respond to Jewish people. But as we've seen, this is not necessarily the most healthy way to read this. There's a third option. 
which is those who are disciples of Jesus. And I think that this makes the most sense. And I'll just give you a couple of passages to help us understand this. So uh, again, if you have your Bibles, turn quickly to Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 10. And just uh, listen to this passage. Jesus has sent his disciples out in Matthew chapter 10. Um, and he's called them to go and basically proclaim the kingdom and, and demonstrate the, the proclamation of the kingdom through doing like signs and casting out demons. And it says in verse 40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So what has Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25? The way that you've responded to these little ones is how you respond to me. What's he saying in, in verse 10 to his disciples? Anyone who uh, welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a righteous person or will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to who? One of these little ones, one of the least of these who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not lose their reward. It seems to me explicit here that Jesus is saying the way that someone tangibly responds to him through his disciples is what defines a sheep from a goat. Again, just another uh, flip a page over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, just performed a miracle. There's crowds all around him. His uh, mother and his brothers think he's a little insane, so they want to go and try and like rescue him from this situation. And so someone comes and says, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are, are outside. And this is how Jesus responds in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 48. He says, uh, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. So I think if we look at the evidence throughout the book of Matthew, how he uses this type of language, the language of the least of these, the language of the brothers and sisters, what we see is that Jesus here is saying the way that people respond to his disciples shows a response to him. So there's this paradoxical reality because the sheep are both the disciples and the little ones, the least of these. They are those who are called to love and care for one another, but also those who have responded to Jesus' followers. And this is what defines a sheep. And Jesus is calling, is calling us to understand this because he wants us to be prepared for this eventuality where he returns and we will stand before him. And, and he actually gives us a couple of points of motivation to help us understand how we are to respond. So let's continue on here and then we'll, we'll unpack these motivations. Verse 41 says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There you go. Hell. It's, it's out of the closet. We got to deal with it. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? 
And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus is calling us to look at what he's saying here and recognize that there is a day when he will return. And he gives us two motivations, I think, that we have to look at to understand his calling, his his yearning, his desire for us to live a life of a sheep, to be people who are prepared for his return. So on the one hand, there's this positive motivation. And Jesus says, again, if we go back to it, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, I think this is really important to note. Jesus doesn't say, come into my kingdom. He says, come and take up the kingdom prepared for you. See, the thing about this is that the sheep, if if I'm correct, and they are disciples of Jesus, then they are already in God's kingdom. So what what is he talking about here? What is Jesus talking about? He says, come and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. You may recall in the last parable, that Jesus is kind of talking about the difference between the servants who have invested their wealth wisely and the one who hasn't. And he says in verse 28 um, about the servant who hasn't, he says, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. We've said throughout these parables that the the goal for Jesus' faithful servants isn't that they get like a free pass, and they get to go and do whatever they want after they're done, but they actually are invested with more responsibility. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He's using Genesis language, this language that we have been given dominion over all creation. Again, I think we have this picture of the afterlife for those who are saved as sort of this ethereal cloud kingdom where we get to sit and enjoy our earthly pleasures. But it's kind of a boring picture, right? You're sitting there and you're like little white robe and naked babies are flying around shooting each other with love darts. And you get to like, I don't know, drink white cocktails and everything is just sort of like there's like, you know, airy fairy music out there. But the Bible's picture of heaven isn't this uh, this disembodied kingdom over here. It's this earthy reality. It's Eden. It's where heaven and earth are united and humans are empowered to live the life that they are called to live. It's this picture where we are kings with Jesus, that we have been invested and invited into this task of ruling with him, of bringing about the flourishing and abundance of creation to bring him glory. Just think for a second about those places in your life, the places where you have the most satisfaction. Maybe you're a parent and you just have that moment when when you've been working with your kids on something over and over and over again. You're trying to develop a a character in their life, like patience or learning how to apologize or forgive or be responsible and they get it. And you watch as their lives are transformed. The joy, the satisfaction that comes from that. Or think about your job. When you you get into a space where you've been working really, really hard in your job and and something good comes out of it. You you have a really good breakthrough with someone that you're working with or a project that gets completed and you know it's going to have a really good impact on the lives of people around you. These are just tastes. They're foretastes 
of what Jesus is talking about here. See, the goal of humanity is to bring about, cultivate, flourishing, abundance to the glory of God. That's what God charged us with. And we get to experience little tastes of it, a little foretaste of it. But what Jesus is saying is there's going to be a, a, a time when I come back and I'm going to let you do that for the rest of eternity. The joy, the satisfaction, everything that you feel as you watch things flourish, as you work hard to see things hit their maximum abundance. Church, that is a picture to be excited about. I'm not really excited about the ethereal cloud kingdom. I'm pretty excited about the eternal garden in which I get to work hard and cultivate beauty and abundance. And this is the invitation of Jesus. Be prepared because what comes next, what comes next is going to be incredible. But there's also a negative motivation. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell. This is a hard topic for sure. But one thing I think that we need to just start this conversation off with is just recognizing uh, that, that hell is... First and foremost, not designed for us, but for dark spiritual powers, for the devil and his angels. I was chatting with a friend a few weeks ago uh, who'd been exploring Christianity, and, and we had had conversations about, you know, kind of the spiritual world, and that was kind of the thing that he was like, I don't think I can buy this. I just, I don't really buy it. And the reality is, is that for most of us, the idea of these spiritual forces that are out there that are evil just seem like almost like a cop-out. You know, crazy people who just don't want to take, uh, you know, take responsibility for the fact that, uh, you know, we have systems of oppression or we have mental health disorders. And don't get me wrong, these things are true. I'm not trying to say that everything is this uh, overarching kind of spiritual reality, but the reality is we sometimes neglect the, to, to understand that the Bible makes it clear that there are dark spiritual forces, they call them powers and principalities, things that govern countries, that govern peoples, that bring about systemic forms of oppression and personal forms of oppression that are out there. We just celebrated... I don't even know you can call it celebrated. We recognized a couple weeks ago the, uh, inter or the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. What was that? It was a time when we looked at our country's past and said there were some horrific things that happened. Where we as a country so dehumanized a, a, a population of people based on their race that we justified doing horrific things at a systemic level. We were discovering these mass graves because what happened was Kids would get taken away from their families, and the, uh, the government, when they, when they got sick, and they, they weren't given necessarily the care that they needed because they weren't considered as valuable, and then they, they would die, and the government didn't want to spend the money to put the bodies on a train and send them back to their families. So what they do is throw them in the ground somewhere in an unmarked grave. That was real people doing really horrible things. That was also the evidence of a dark spiritual force. How do you get an entire population of Germans who just participate in or ignore the whole scale slaughter of Jewish people? 
yes, it was really sinful people doing sinful things, but let's not mistake ourselves. The devil comes to destroy and devour. He takes great pleasure in perpetuating lies that lead to these types of atrocities. And there's a promise in here. There's a promise in here that we should long for, that there's going to come a day when Jesus says, no more. There's going to come a day when the idea of a residential school, when the idea of the Holocaust, when the idea of oppression and slaughter and abuse does not exist. Jesus is going to quarantine Satan and his servants in hell, but he he makes this point. There's no neutrality. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You are for him or you're for these spiritual powers. He says, if you are not prepared to give your allegiance to me, you've given them to someone else, and you will share their fate. The language he uses is the language departure and fire. I just want to unpack this concept a little bit just to help us understand it, because, again, I think we have this character of hell that's not helpful. Tim Keller is one of our our favorite authors and, uh, and pastors, uh, he wrote an article on hell, and I, and I think it's been really, really great um, just to unpack this. Um, and and he, I'll just read a clip from it. He, he starts off this, this uh, section of his article by saying, when you look at the biblical imagery that gets used for hell, virtually no scholar or commentator believes that those things are literal. Some do, but, but most don't. They believe that they are uh, symbolic. But then he goes on to say this. He says, in the teaching of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God is Depart from me. That's what we just saw, right? Depart from me. That is remarkable. To simply be away from God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Why? We were originally created to walk in God's immediate presence. In one sense, of course, God is everywhere and upholds everything. Only in Him do we all speak and move and have our being. In that sense, then, it is impossible for us to depart from the Lord. Even hell cannot exist unless God upholds it. But the Bible says, sin excludes us from God's face. All the life, joy, love, strength, and meaning we have looked for and longed for is found in Him. That is in His favor, presence, fellowship, and pleasure. Sin removes us from that aspect of His power that sustains us and supports us. It is to us as water is to a fish, away from it. Life slowly ebbs away. This is what has been happening to us throughout history. That is why, for Paul, the everlasting fire and destruction of hell is exclusion from the presence of the Lord. Separation from God and his blessings forever is the reality to which all symbols point. For example, when Jesus speaks of being destroyed in hell, the word he uses is the Greek word apolumi, meaning not to be annihilated out of existence, but to be totaled and ruined so as to be useless for its intended purpose. The image of Gehenna and maggots means decomposition. Once a body is dead, it loses its beauty and strength and coherence. It begins to break into its constituent parts to stink and to disintegrate. That is what, so what is it to be a totaled human soul? does not cease to exist, but rather becomes completely incapable of all the things a human soul is for. Reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving or receiving love or joy. Why? 
because a human soul was built for worshiping and enjoying the true God. And all truly human life flows from that. And in this, this world, all of humanity, even those who have turned away from God, still are supported by kindly providences or common grace, keeping us still capable of wisdom, love, joy, and goodness. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, the result is hell. The goats are those who have said to Jesus, we don't want to have anything to do with you. And there's going to come a day when Jesus says, okay, you don't have to. But what Keller is making clear here is that all good things come from God. Our joy, our love, community, fellowship, sacrifice. What happens when you strip those away and all that's left is our sin, the things that are absent of God. Selfishness, anger, hatred. Think about those traits in you. Would you want to spend eternity with yourself if that's all there was? Sounds like hell to me. And this is what Jesus is saying. There's going to come a day when he will return. And he wants us to understand that he's calling us to give our allegiance to him, to be prepared. And he's inviting us to consider both the joys that await, but also the terrors. So there's a couple of things I want to draw out for us as we close. A couple of implications, if you will. The first thing I want to just, just mention, I think it's important for us to understand, is that in a sense, what Jesus is saying here, and it's important for us to get, is that the evidence that we are indeed sheep is not our religious activity. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaking of this day says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? Perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. By unpacking the evidences of someone's sheephood through tangible interrelationship, interrelational examples, Jesus wants to make it clear that he's not after a bunch of religious people. He's after transformed people. People who live differently with one another. And he goes on to talk about that in terms of the way that we do that to the least of these. And if the least of these are indeed Jesus' disciples and the sheep are Jesus' disciples, then we must evidentially say that what Jesus is saying here is the way that we treat one another as disciples matters. So look around. Take a second, look around. I know it's a dark theater. Guess what? These are the least of these. These are the people that we are called to feed, to give something to drink, to clothe, to visit in prison. This is the life that Jesus has caused to live this is the evidence that we have understood what he has done for us by the way that we do it for one another. This is this paradox, right? We are both to be 
the needy ones, but also those who serve the needy ones. So let me just ask a couple of questions. How would you respond to the needs around you if you knew that you were doing that to Jesus? Someone comes to you and says, I don't have a place to live right now. And you have a spare bedroom. Would you say, "Mm, I'll think about it. That was Jesus? Or you heard about someone who is just really struggling and they need a date night because their kids are, you know, they haven't had one and their marriage is, you know, going through struggles. And you're like, oh, I could take your kids, but it's a little inconvenient. I don't want to do that. And those are small little examples. The reality is, is that we are called to live a life characterized by radical, sacrificial love demonstrated in community. And I'm not telling you this as someone who's arrived, because I haven't. When I read this passage, it convicts me and it confronts me because I have those same issues. But Jesus, in his grace, is telling us this is what it looks like to be prepared. And it's so funny. It's ironic, actually. The sheep in the story are surprised. But it's as if Jesus wants them to be surprised so you and I don't have to be. He's telling us this is what the evidence of me being part of your life looks like. But there's a second part of this preparation, which is if if we are called to be the least of these, and the least of these are those to whom the sheep are to respond, this shows that they haven't had an encounter with Jesus, then it means that we are to be people who are on mission so that others can have an encounter with Jesus. I uh, recently saw an interview with a a comedian named Pendulette. He's an atheist. But he said this, and and I, I found it profound. He said this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, meaning who share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them that because it would be socially awkward and there's atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep, my, keep your religion to yourself. And then he goes on to say this, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and to not tell them that? I think it's just worth pondering. We are called to be Jesus' brothers and sisters. And here's the the rich application for us. We're called to suffer hunger, thirst, imprisonment, sickness, to be pushed to the margins and edges of society, to become nothing so that others have the opportunity to have an encounter with him. Let me ask you, do you love someone enough to go to those desperate lengths so that they might encounter Jesus? I grew up in a culture where evangelism was this idea of like a hit-and-run tactic. You meet someone in the street, you give them like a four spiritual laws track, you run away. Check mark. 
I evangelized. They met Jesus. The picture that Jesus gives us of his people is a picture of, of people who leverage every aspect of their life, even their own basic needs, so that someone else can have an encounter with Jesus. It's the picture that we get of the Apostle Paul. What does he go through? I mean, he goes through shipwreck. He goes through hunger. He goes through poverty. He is stoned. And I'm not talking about like the good BC bud kind of stone, like rocks thrown at him kind of stoned. He's imprisoned. He goes without. Why? So that other people can encounter Jesus. This is a picture of what Jesus is talking about here for us to be the least of these, his little brothers and sisters. Some of you guys know Dave and Leah Gray. They're not here so I can brag on them. Won't inflate their egos, I don't think. <clears throat> I, uh, I have a lot of respect for Dave and Leah because they are people who I see further ahead in this journey of working this out than me. I think I've told this story before, but a couple months ago they noticed this car parked in front of their house. A couple people were living in it. And they just said, you know what, these are um, people that need to know about Jesus, they need to be loved, they need to be cared for. Dave and Lee don't have a lot. Um, you know, they're by no means like on the wealthier end of the spectrum of society. But they got this picture that whatever we have is to be leveraged for the sake of other people coming to know Jesus. And so when this couple was there and they saw them, they're like, oh, you guys probably need a shower. Why don't you come in and use our water? You guys probably need some food. Why don't you come in? Oh, you've been sleeping in a car? You need a bed to stay in? Why don't you come and have a nap in our house? And I got to see as Dave and Leah not only did this in themselves, but invited the Christian community around them to come in and support these two people. They were cared for, housed, given resources. People leveraged what they had so that this group of people could know who Jesus was. This is what we are called to do. 